Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. Well, we are continuing in our series in Revelation, and I hope that you're able to keep up because each week builds on the one that came before it. So remember, you can find the videos of the services online or our podcast is up to date so you can catch up on all the sermons that have come before. Now, last week, uh, we read about five of the seven trumpets in Revelation 9. These warnings about God's coming judgment, warnings that are mercifully given to a rebellious world that's chosen to stand against God and his coming kingdom. Now, if you remember, scripture refers to them, these people, as inhabitants of the earth, people who have set themselves as enemies of God. But in his mercy, he sends partial judgments to show them what it's going to be like if they remain unrepentant, if they continue to choose themselves and their idols over the one true and living God. Now, unfortunately, Revelation 9 ends tragically. And what a way to start. Listen to how the inhabitants of the earth respond to the warnings of those first six trumpets. It says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their theft. Y'all, the warnings didn't work. The inhabitants of the earth, remember, that's how Revelation describes those who have made themselves enemies of God. They refused to recognize God's power. They refused to see that along with God's judgment comes the hope of salvation. And they continued on in their idolatrous ways. Now, that would be a huge bummer if we just ended the story there. That's the end of the chapter, but it's not the end of the story. Chapter 10 and 11, they're the antidote to the tragedy of chapter 9. And in just a minute, I'm going to summarize chapter 10 for you. Then we're going to read from chapter 11 and see what it all means as the story in Revelation continues to unfold. And we'll see what it means for us today. Now, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet sounds, there's an interlude. If you remember, the same thing happened in chapter six. Remember, seven seals were being broken. And after the sixth seal was broken, the world is faced with this question. In the face of God's coming judgment, the question is, who can stand? And then before breaking the seventh seal, chapter seven answers the question. Those who are sealed by the Lamb, they are the ones who will stand. They will be the ones who will survive the judgment of God and will find their place by his side forever. For those who are in Christ, that's you. The family of God, the chosen, the elect, the saved, however you want to phrase it. Revelation calls us the sealed. And just as we saw in chapter 6, now, in chapter 9 and 10, after the sixth trumpet sounds, we're faced with another question. 
The rebellious world has chosen to remain in rebellion, even in the face of these warnings of judgment. So the question is, what are the sealed supposed to do about it? In the midst of a rebellious and idolatrous world, what are we here to do? So in chapter 10, uh, we meet an angel described with language that we've seen before in Revelation. Uh, The word angel, all it means is messenger. Now, this messenger is either Jesus himself or Jesus is behind and in the message. It's actually not clear. This messenger hands John a scroll. And this is the same scroll whose seals were broken back in chapter 6. But now it's open. It's laid out before John. He now has in his possession God's plan of salvation. God's plan to redeem and restore his creation and his people. John, then he's told to devour the scroll, to eat it. Remember, it doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. When the Bible speaks about eating or devouring a word from God, it just means to consume it, to take it in. Now, the reason for that kind of language is that when we consume the word of God, when we truly take it in, God's word becomes a part of us in the same way that nutrients do. They fuel and they help our body to function. So John eats the scroll. He consumes this word of God, this plan of salvation. And he's told that when he does that, it's going to be sweet to his lips, but it's going to sit bitter in his stomach. Now, this is familiar language to the prophets of the Old Testament. The prophets always spoke simultaneously of God's hope and God's judgment. His hope is sweet to taste, but his judgment sits bitter on the stomach. And that's exactly what John experienced. Chapter 10 tells us it was sweet to his lips, but it was bitter to his stomach. In biblical times, your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, they thought that took place right here in your gut. I mean, if you think about it, when you're worried, anxious, upset, excited, where do you feel it? You don't feel it here, even though we know that's what's happening. We feel it right here. So for it to sit bitter in the stomach, it's to say that God's word can actually upset us. It can make us unsettled and anxious. Why? Well, I think simply put, God's coming judgment, it should cause us to worry. If not for ourselves, then for our friends, our neighbors, family members, anyone who's created in the image of God but doesn't know that sweet hope that's offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So John is told exactly what to do with his sour stomach. He has to let it all out. It says, Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now look, not to be too graphic, But sometimes the best remedy to a sour stomach is just to let it all out. And this imagery works for God's word too. God's word of judgment, if it sits bitter within us, it'll turn sour over time. It's not meant to just sit in us. It's meant to become a part of us and then to leave us, to leave our lips for the benefit of others. When we speak it, that bitter judgment is transformed into hope, and it becomes sweet to our lips again. It becomes a sweet, sweet sound to the ears of those who are willing and able to hear. 
Now, I want to read to you some of chapter 11, and this will help us to see further what we are supposed to do with and about the warnings of God's judgment that have fallen on deaf ears. So listen to this. This is from chapter 11. It says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. And they have the power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, there is so much imagery here. Every bit of it comes directly from the stories of the Old Testament. Those who are biblically literate, you'll recognize much of what you just heard. But let me take a second and run through some of these images quickly. Uh, The measuring rod that comes from the prophet Zechariah, but it's no longer measuring an actual temple in Jerusalem. By the time Revelation's written, that temple has been destroyed by Rome. Now it's measuring the new temple of God, which is us. And we're being measured so that we can be protected by God himself, as if he's building a hedge around us. Protected because we're going to be be attacked. We're going to be attacked by the inhabitants of the earth. They're standing in the courtyard just outside the temple, looking for ways to tear us down and even destroy us. Then two witnesses appear. Uh, They're described as olive trees, as two lampstands, as beings who can call down fire from heavens, who can stop the rain from falling, turn water on earth into blood, send plagues to the earth to stop those who are persecuting them. So much imagery. Every bit of it coming directly from the Old Testament. In that short description of these two witnesses, we find references to the prophet Zechariah, to the king Zerubbabel and his high priest Joshua. We find reference to Moses and Aaron, who God used to bring plagues on Egypt, again, from the Exodus story like we saw last week. We also find reference to the prophet Elijah, who called down fire from heaven and stopped rain from falling for three and a half years. So who exactly are these two witnesses? Is it Zerubbabel and Joshua? Is it Moses and Aaron? Elijah or other prophets like Zechariah? You see, the witnesses in Revelation 11, they are the legacy of these heroes of the Old Testament. It's a people who will come later and witness to the world. These two witnesses are us. It's the church. And all throughout Scripture... There's a biblical principle that every legal matter must be settled by a minimum of two or more witnesses. We see this over and over. Jesus will eventually say, where two or more are gathered, there I am also. His witnesses are testifying to his truth, and he is with his witnesses because he is the truth to which they are testifying. You see, John is telling us that God plans to do through us, the two witnesses, 
what God did through people like Moses and Aaron, Elijah, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. In the end, God will vindicate his message and overcome his enemies. But just as we saw last week, not before he gives his enemies every opportunity to recognize and repent. He will move heaven and earth to win these lost souls. He will fight for the inhabitants of the earth because he loves even his enemies. As Beth would say, I wonder, I wonder if you can see what all this means. The tragic end of chapter 9 Then the scroll given to John that was sweet to taste but bitter to his stomach. The command that he had to tell the world about the judgment and hope found in Jesus. Then followed by chapter 11, this really strange description of two witnesses whose words carry with them the power and the authority of the creator of heaven and earth. Do you see what it all means? You see the warnings, the trumpets, they're not enough. Evidence that creation itself is turning upside down, it's not enough to convince a rebellious world to repent. Because even though they see what we see, they don't understand what they're seeing. They don't understand what's going on. They don't have the context. The world falling apart around them won't convince them unless there's someone there to explain what in the world is going on. Listen to how the story of these two witnesses ends. We hear that the beast comes to destroy the two witnesses, overpowers them, and kills them. But after three and a half days, God raises the witnesses back to life. The resurrected witnesses find their place at God's side, and the entire city watches the whole thing happen. And then, the final note from the sixth trumpet sounds. An earthquake destroys a tenth of the city and kills a tenth of the people. But again, restraint and mercy, just like we saw last week. It's only a tenth. Nine tenths of the city are saved. Nine tenths of the people are saved. And listen to what happens next. It says the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. These enemies of God, the inhabitants of the earth, after the sixth trumpets have sounded and after the witnesses have given testimony to the judgment and hope in Jesus Christ, then and only then, the warnings and the witness, only after they both have come, only then will they discover the hope and the fear of the Lord and give glory to God. That bitter judgment that sits on our stomach It turns sweet like honey to our lips. God's word to us has now become the witness that wins the world. There's one final thing I want to show you about these witnesses, and this is where we'll find our our so what for this week. I want to show you how they were dressed. Now, unfortunately, it's not jeans and sandals. The church's witness is actually dressed more plain and more frugal even than that. Listen to this. It says, I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is a sign of mourning in scripture and it's also a sign of repentance. See, these witnesses do not stand 
over the inhabitants of the earth in judgment. They stand before them, next to them, with tears in their eyes, preaching a message of repentance as a repentant people. This might be the single most important detail in chapter 11. It's important because it's about the nature of our witness to the world, about the kind of witness that wins the world. It's a witness clothed in sackcloth, covered in repentance. See, as a repentant people, we understand that we can't follow a new master without turning away from the old one. We can't follow two masters. And that's really all repentance means. It's not about confessing your deepest and darkest to a priest. It's just about turning around. That's literally what the word means in both Greek and Hebrew. Changing your direction and changing your mind. Choosing to leave behind the old ways and now follow the way of Jesus. And that describes, that's what signifies those who were sealed by the Lamb. You don't make that transition from an inhabitant of the earth to a sealed child of God without repentance. And in the same way, we cannot announce to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ unless we ourselves are seeking to live as citizens of his kingdom. And we can only become citizens of his kingdom if we ourselves are repentant, constantly turning from idolatry, constantly turning toward Jesus. You see, I think much of the church's witness in our culture, if I'm honest, it's actually born out of judgment. Standing on street corners, telling people that they're dirty, no good, rotten sinners, that they're bound for an eternity of suffering and damnation. That's not the gospel. That's not who we are. So why do we sound that way when we talk to the world about our hope in Christ? And maybe we just don't know what else to say. So, so what if, what if we flip the script? What if instead of telling them how terrible they are and the suffering that awaits them, what if we turned it on ourselves? Y'all, I was so lost. I was caught up in sin and I was suffering here on earth because of it. And the whole time I thought that I could pull myself out of the pit, that I was in control of my own destiny I trusted my own strength, my own power, my own wisdom. That was going to fix what was wrong with me. And every single time I failed. I was utterly lost, broken, and beaten down. Eventually, nearly an adult who was nothing more than a child. Hopeless to stand on my own strength anymore. You know, people who knew me years ago, uh, people who I went to school with, there is no way that it makes any sense to them that I'm doing what I'm doing right now. The person I am today, that is not the person that I was. And that's all because of Jesus. As I began to turn away from myself, to turn away from the false promises of this world, I began to see someone bigger than me. And I saw him simply inviting me to keep turning around. It was like a bright light, painful to look at at first, but as my eyes adjusted, I could see that it was lighting a path in front of me, showing me a direction for my life, a plan intended for my good, already laid out for me. But most importantly, that bright light was shining on a path that led me to the loving arms of Jesus. 
I believe I was truly lost and have been found. And I really want that for you. Y'all, that truth sits bitter on my stomach. It causes me to weep, to worry, to fear for those around me because I remember what it was like. And I don't want that for anyone, not even an enemy. But speaking that truth, it cures my sour stomach because that word of hope is sweet to my lips. Y'all, what if our witness sounded like that? What if we didn't see the lost as us versus them? What if we just saw them as us before we were found? We're no better than them. We are them before Jesus began to change us. I will never understand. I will never understand why Christians expect non-Christians to just start acting like Christians. So what if we stopped judging and criticizing a broken and secular world for being broken and secular? What if we just looked at the world with a broken heart? What if looking at them reminds us of who we used to be? And in our compassion, we share with them the hope that we have in Christ. What if rather than sitting in silent judgment of the world around us, what if we turn toward them and actually say something? But when we do, what if rather than coming at them with a finger pointed in their chest, what if we come at them with that finger pointed in ours? What if all you needed to bring in order to do this was, was you, was your story? your witness to the saving work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in your own life. You don't need a theological treatise. You don't need a theological degree. You just need you, your story, and your witness to the saving work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then, what if you simply invited them to follow you as you follow him? That is is a witness that wins the world. As we have seen in the past couple weeks, we don't get to escape the tribulation. We don't get to escape some of the suffering that comes as God's judgment begins to play out on earth. And we experience that every day. We know that that's true. What Revelation is trying to tell us is that we're here for a reason. That in the midst of all that, we are here to be witnesses to the mercy and hope of Christ. Interpreters of the seals and the trumpets. We are here to explain to a lost world what in the world is going on. So maybe you're asking, how do we do that? Our vision and direction at First Pres, it is designed to answer that very question. We do that by becoming disciple-making disciples who are biblically literate, spiritually formed, mission-focused, and gospel-fluent. And if we can commit to that vision, and if we can do it as a repentant people, calling others to repentance, then we can trust that we'll be given the words to say. We will be ready. As long as we rely on God's word, on the person and work of Jesus, and on the power of the Holy Spirit, ours will be the witness that wins the world. And thanks be to God. 
Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the way that we judge and criticize those who are lost and waiting to be found. I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to be bold and brave, to be willing to share with them the hope that we have found in you, and then equip us with the words that we need. And maybe it's not words, maybe it's action, but equip us with whatever we need to turn that bitter judgment that we know is coming for those who are lost, turn it into sweet honey on our lips as we share with them the good news, the beautiful news of the work of our loving Savior. Be with us in all of this as we continue to read this letter, as we continue to wrestle with what it means for us today here in Kingwood in 2020. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.